Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. All right, welcome everyone. So this week we are going to hear from some of the guys in Sing Sing. This is the episode I promised a couple weeks ago. With the George Floyd killing and the protests, everyone's talking about, you know, police reform and criminal justice reform, but we don't hear much from the men who've experienced this thing front to back. And I think that's important. So I'm passing the mic off today, basically. Remember, pull off, collect call from Sing Sing, like over this prison phone in the yard. So these guys have given up their phone time with their families to call my producer, Steve. So yeah, I'd just like to thank them for that. So a bit about the guys. So Self came to prison when he was 16. He's been in 10 years, serving 20 to life. And he's 26 now. He's from Harlem, New York. I'll give you Self. Check him out. My name is Self. I knew John Lennon for about two, three months now. I've been incarcerated since the age of 16. I'm 26 years old now, and I'm currently confined here at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. I'm from New York. I'm from Harlem, New York. Um, I've been in jail, like you said, for 10 years. I'm incarcerated for murder in the second degree. Over the course of my bid, I've been incarcerated at Rikers Island. I've been incarcerated at Comstock Correctional Facility, Auburn, Southport um, Box. I've been incarcerated at Wendy, amongst many other prisons throughout the state. When it comes to opportunities, everybody's looking for an opportunity in here. Everybody's seeking a way to escape this harsh and cruel reality that we're living in. And I believe that when it comes to opportunities for me, I found my opportunity through music. I found my opportunity to express myself through writing novels and, and, and things of that nature. We all have our, have our own path of getting to where we need to be along our journey, but that's my opportunity. That's where I found my comfortability and my, you know, way to just escape this place that I'm currently residing in. What kind of stuff do you like to write about in your, in your songs and the novels? Right now, I've, I've, I like to write about, in my, in my music, I'm focusing on how to be a songwriter. I'm focusing on, you know, the ins and outs of the music industry, and I'm focusing on writing hip-hop and R&B um, music right now. As far as novels, I've been writing um, erotic novels, I've been writing urban novels, and poetry. Musically, my biggest influences are like the more of the younger artists, such as Drake, uh, Meek Mill, especially, you know, now that he's involved with the justice reform and and things of that nature. I believe people should pick up <laughs> The New Jim Crow <laughs> by Alexander Michelle. How are you feeling? How is everybody feeling about everything going on in the in the news right now? Well, with everything.
everything that's going on in, in, in the street with protesters out in the street marching across America is more so inspiring to the, to the inmates and the prisoners in here because it gives us hope because we face, as incarcerated individuals, we face racial inequality and injustices, which, you know, became the normal of our environment. And in this place, we become targets due to our dark brown skin complexion and we're subjected and prone to more police brutality than any other ethnic group that's around us, like as far as individuals who are in here who, who possess the same skin color as me, which is dark brown. And the reason why the organized protesters in the street, they mean so much to me because it's on a scale where they got all ethnic groups involved coming together and standing up for a man with the same skin complexion as mine. These protesters, they give me strength, they give me hope, they give me faith that, you know, things will change. And maybe I don't have to walk around feeling so much as a target, just like some of my brothers and sisters that's in here with me as well. I've seen many individuals around me targeted because of their skin complexion, targeted because they might have took too long to eat in the mess hall, targeted because they stood up for whatever it was that they wanted to believe in. And I believe that, you know, in my life, I've just been misguided and manipulation and thinking wrong was right. And now these protesters out there, they give me a more meaningful insight as to what's right is right. And it's about time that we feel like we have to stand up and, and take charge of our, our lives. And, and we have to start fighting for things that's right. And I believe that that's where that's where we are in a, in a society within a society because we're humans at the end of the day we're not just prisoners we're not just inmates we're not just convicts anything that you know people label us as we're humans and we shouldn't be dehumanized i think it gave us more awareness that we all need to stick together because in some way shape or form we're all suffering going through the same the same dilemmas and i believe that what happened with George Floyd in the street, I think that is sparking a social change within here. It's making more prisoners come together, and it's, it's showing us that we need to stand up for what's right, that we need to realize that we're not the enemy amongst each other. It's the people who have the power and who have the authority who actually try to tear us down. And it's showing us that we need to come together and we need a, a fight for what, essentially for what we believe in. And that's just for our freedom and for us to actually be recognized as human beings. Are these open conversations? Can you tell us any of them in particular? These are open conversations and people are coming together. And like I had a conversation with a, with, a, with another fellow prisoner yesterday and he, he broke down and he started crying to me and he, 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 he expressed his concern of being in here. And as a man who has natural life, He's scared that he might lose his life in here because there's so much police brutality going on. He's scared that he might be a victim to the chaos and the madness that's going on in here with the inmates and the, and the correctional officers because he feels as if because there's no, no media coverage in here and there's no cameras in here that they won't be able to see everything that's going on. And it's sad to say, but... With everything that's going on in the street right now, the madness and the chaos might have slowed down and it might have, because there's so much scrutiny on it now, and here it hasn't slowed down one bit. It was still continuing to be mistreated and, and handled improperly. That's from the CEOs? That's from some of the other inmates? The improper treatment is 
coming from the correctional officers. That's definitely something that I've seen over the course of my 10-year bid in every facility that I've been in, I've been to. You referred to an incident in a mess hall a little bit earlier. Was that from a CO or was that from a fellow inmate? That was from a fellow inmate where the inmate took too long eating and because he's a slow eater he, he and he took too long and they was trying to um they was trying to essentially rush him out the mess hall to return back to his cell. And when he was approached he told the officer that he wasn't finished eating and the officers began to, to nitpick with him where essentially not long from that moment they slapped his tray out of his hand and they began to like jump on him and abuse him. Can you tell me what your first conversation with John Lennon was like? I've heard he was a, a editor for um, one of the editors on the Master F Esquire magazine. So when I essentially approached him, I wanted to see if he was uh, available to do a um, piece basically on my life. I've been incarcerated since 16, like as I said, and I feel like with my story, I, as I explained to John Lennon, it's, it's a complex one where I was born and raised in Harlem, New York, and all my life I've witnessed my mother. She was a crack addict. My father, he was he was never present in a picture, and I've been in and out of group homes, foster homes, and basically all my life I had a film for myself. So when I told him my story, as far as transitioning from that, then growing in the, going into the streets, and then transitioning from that into into um, prison society, I, I've explained everything to him and try to give him more insight of how I became who I who I became today. And he um gave me insight to how his journey became and how we had similar things in common. The question is what can I do to get myself out of the position that I'm currently in. Had you been writing songs and stories before you met John? I never knew I had talent in the street. So I've been writing since about 2010, when I first came in, I seen some of the dudes in the day room on Rikers Island writing raps, and I approached one of the, the individuals, and I essentially just asked, can you teach me how to write a rap? <laughs> how, how did yeah. Wait, how did that conversation go? <laughs> so the dude, he, he laughed, as I did just now, and he said, why do you want to be a rapper? What makes you want to be a rapper? And, you know, I don't know what it was. I just was in love with the melodies. I was in love with the with the talent, just the, the, the pure talent of it all. And he just, I explained that to him, and he just sat me down and just told me to express what it was that I was feeling on paper, to just express my life story. And that's what I did. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Can you drop a couple bars right now? I don't want to hear it. That's facts. I was up north in the max. Niggas who told me they low you ain't come show support when the judge gave me life on the back. It was just crazy how niggas they played me and left me out there thinking that I would rat. Now that I'm home and made it on my own, I leveled up different and got to them racks, got to them bands, ain't nothing to win. All mains and some tan but the Tim's Javonchi hoodie with the Cartier lens. Credit cards got me whipping the Benz. <laughs> that's just something like <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a hip hop artist, so that's what it comes with. <laughs> that's cool, man. That's really cool. All right. Thank you. It's definitely something I'm looking to pursue. I'm I'm definitely trying to figure out right now how to get my stuff out there on SoundCloud, Instagram, Facebook, and everything like that, those type of platforms. But it's definitely something that I'm trying to surround myself with. It's definitely individuals. I'm looking for individuals to surround myself with that could potentially help me and get me to where I need to be.
And Arif is 58. He's been in prison for much of his life. He's the wise elder of the Muslim community. Arif is a writer, too, and we're always kicking it about sort of being able to spot the story in here and narrative and prose. But he's got plenty to say about what's going on today, so I'll give you Arif. So my name is Reginald Stevens. I'm a fellow writer. As a matter of fact, uh, John has kind of mentioned me in a couple pieces, so I guess it's safe to say I'm kind of like following his tracks because my goal is, is to write for a living. John's question to me was, what did I think about the protests that's going on? So I, I think, you know, I, I look at the protests and COVID-19 in tandem, especially with regard to how both of these issues are disproportionately affect people of color. One of my concerns is that prisoners are kind of like probably uh, affected the most with regard to the decisions of, of lawmakers, police officers, judges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yet we're kind of voiceless in this regard. And so I get that we got convicted of a crime and a judgment is passed, but the police department represents, well, not just the police department, the criminal justice system represents the most visible aspect of structural racism in America. I'm incredulous over the idea that no one is talking to us about what happened with us and what needs to change. And, you know, I'm hearing Sing Sing where the officers are predominantly black, right? But I think they are, they're kind of racist by agency. You know, as you move north, you see the racism in the prisons in, in northern New York are blatant. And as a result, you know, they have um, relatively great control of those facilities. So what happens to that person who lives under those conditions for 5, 10, 15, 20 years? For most guys, it's about coming outside every day and going to the yard. It's an existence of hopelessness. And with the exception of a hand few that avail themselves to educational opportunities and go to college, and again, that is a minority, people are just warehoused. All of those people are warehoused. 85% of them are going to return back to the community. So taxpayers, they spent their money to create this criminal justice system to correct the ills that plague society, and... Really, nothing is done to address it. You just move the problem out of you. We need to have a voice. People need to start asking questions about the functions of the criminal justice system. They need to ask the superintendents, the legislatures, do you really think your criminal justice apparatus in a given state is effective and a benefit to society? So how does this movement, how does a Black Life movement reflect and affect the people who are most affected by structural racism. So I grew up in Washington Heights, which is just above Harlem. Unfortunately for me, you know, I've been involved with the criminal justice system from a small child. At this point in my life, I don't make any excuses about the choices I've made. You know, I think a grown man just has to take responsibility for his life at some time. But I'm nevertheless very aware of the factors that took place early on in my life that steered me in this direction. I came to prison, and I was able to get a graduate degree. I'm a writer. So sometimes it just makes me think about, you know, what my life would have been like if my environment was different. I just finished a piece called Reservoir of Hope 
about what's taking place in America right now. And um, I'm also working on a memoir. So a theme that I use in my life, getting comfortable in my skin. So it's safe to say, because of all the things I've experienced, I wasn't comfortable in my skin until I was almost 50 years old, right? And so I lived a life of wearing masks, and those masks occur as a result of the need to fitting in different situations or just feeling like you don't fit in. You know, it's very interesting. W.E. Du Bois, in his book called Soul of Black Folks, talks about the two-ness of black consciousness. And he talks about how black men especially, when they see the world from an idealized perspective, they see it from the lens of white eyes and what's, what's possible for men, for a man. But then they, you know, their own reality is that my prospects are limited because of the color of my skin. And so, of course, those oppressions have been less overt over the last century. But in a contemporary culture, they're very nuanced, they're very subtle. You know, they manifest themselves in a variety of ways that's just not readily apparent. And it has a, a great influence on the culture. And, of course, culture tutors everybody. So the vast majority of black and brown people that find themselves in, involved in the criminal justice system. I think that they see it from a perspective is this is how I make ends meet. Is that wrong? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, because we do live in a, in a society with laws and et cetera, et cetera. But w what are the things that, you know, created that thinking? Why were they not able to participate in the human race like the rest of America? Also, the idea of a super predator, it's amazing how tropes are spoken or are bandied about in mass media. And those tropes are image generating in the public. So the white person in society who gets up and goes to work every day, lives his middle class existence, clueless about what other people, what their daily experience looks like. Um, so it's, it's easy to say, yeah, they're super predators. Because you have no point of reference about what a super predator is. Somebody told you they're super predators. You know, this guy got charged for homicide. He sells drugs in the community, yada, yada, yada. And those things are bad, right? But society paints that person's entire being, existence as some kind of pathological entity that should be removed from society and forgotten about. So the machinery of government, is complex and behind the scenes. One of the things that, that I write about in my latest piece is that it is a breath of fresh air, really, to see all people coalesce around the sanctity of black life, regardless of all the things you, you, you think about. Because I, I, I think that George Floyd exposed the underbelling of so-called American exceptionalism. And I think all people had to really take a step back and reconsider what it is they have been led to believe for all of these years about black and brown people. What's your first response seeing, hearing all the protests that are going on on the outside? Just what's your initial gut reaction to everything that's going on? So it's funny. I, I, I actually write about that, and I say I'm hopeful. I have hope tempered by the cynicism of my read of American history, right? So one of the things that is critical in society is the media. My concern is, is how do we keep this movement going after the media latches on to some other hot button issue, you know? And, and you know, the, the, the other thing is that I think that we're going we're to have a second wave of the coronavirus. Probably what I would like to see the most 
is people go to the polls in November and vote their conscience. Do you have family friends on the outside that have been affected by the coronavirus? Yeah, I do. I do. I have, I have an 80-year-old mother that hasn't been out the house in three months. Um, I have some sisters. I have a sister, nephews, and nieces in the Bronx. And I have family in Georgia. Oddly enough, all my family members are relatively educated professionals. And so they've, they've done the things necessary to, main, to be safe as possible. So listen, they're chasing us off the phone. Oh, Reginald, one more time, plug where we can find your work. You can find my work at Prison Germ, P-R-I-S-O-N-J-O-U-R-N, at T-S-U dot E-D-U. Got to go, got to go. All right, thank you, Reginald, so much. Great talking to you. Absolutely. All right. All right, bye-bye. Last is a lean, 53 He's from Brownsville, Brooklyn. He's a leader of the Muslim community in Sing Sing. He's a father and a husband. Oh, and he told me to give his beautiful wife, Daphne, a shout out. She's been holding him down since the precinct 16 years ago. So uh, let's hear what uh, Aleem has to say. Hey, man, my name is Abdul Aleem, and I met John Lennon here at Sing Sing. As a matter of fact, I work in the facility orientation, and John Lennon was transferred here from another joint, and we just clicked, man. We just uh, gave him how Sing Sing runs, man, and he jumped in, and we've been cool ever since. What's your first gut initial visceral reaction to everything that's going on on the outside right now? Hey, man, I am George Floyd. I feel like George Floyd. I've been George Floyd. I grew up in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. I've been in George Floyd's position and survived it. I watch TV. As somebody who can't really voice anything from here, although I can, but my voice can't be heard, I have to hate that action in my heart. I walk past individuals and I look in their faces and I see George Floyd. Right now in the yard is, what, a hundred George Floyds just walking around aimlessly. It's a little disheartening. I feel hurt. I feel like I'm related to him. I can't watch it no more, to tell you like that, Steve. I don't even watch that. I think that it's an insult to keep showing it on TV, as a matter of fact. I think I saw George's daughter, and I can't. I have daughters, and they're daddies. And I would never want my daughter to see her daddy pinned down in such a way. Even now, I kind of visualize in that scene. I look at other men, and we have like a, a understanding, guys I don't know, but it's like an understanding. But you don't have to say, hey, man, what do you think about George Floyd? kind of looking at guys on next black man's eyes and go, okay. And we, we look at each other, and it's almost like a useless stare. It's almost like a, so what? Not even so what, like I don't care, but so what? This has been happening. Desensitized. So you have daughters, you have a family and people on the outside. What's your interactions been like with them? You know, the funniest thing is I have daughters, I have a son, and I, I've, been, I've been just really, really panicking over him. I'm overprotective about him now. I've, told, I've given my, my wife orders to keep him inside, which is unfair. But if I'm not there, like, he doesn't have his ultimate protection. I don't know where I read this one or what philosopher said this, but he said one of the greatest tragedies in the American condition is that a young daughter should be raised without the security and protection of her father. And that resonates every single day. They work. My wife goes to work. My daughter's 21. She goes to work. My son is 20. He has an essential job. He works at one of the supermarkets, like at Whole Foods. And he is doing what he can 
but I, I worry that if the sun sets, he's walking along a, a, a sidewalk. And I asked him, was he afraid? And he said, he's not afraid because it really, it, it, it hasn't really permeated. Hasn't really gotten. He, he's young. He feels invincible. He, he doesn't think he could be George Floyd. And that scares me. But everybody's going through life, you know, and then it's like, hey, man, you know, everybody's anticipating the next George Floyd, i tell you that. You know, Eric Gardner was worse than ever. I think Eric Gardner was, was so bad for me because I was like, wow, this is on TV. Look, this is somebody getting choked out on TV. And my wife was like, wow. And then my wife said something interesting to me the other day. She said, you know what? I'm kind of, I feel bad because I'm kind of glad that you're in there right now. She's glad that you're inside Sing Sing right now? Yeah. Wow. Because she said, I'm safe. And I'm like, safe? I said, anything can happen to me in here, sweet. But she was like, wow, but at least you're safe from NYPD. She says she seems that they're a little bit more aggressive than usual right now. Wow. Yeah. That's... She said they seem to walk with a, a little bit more swag, as we would say in the hood. They got a little bit more bot to their swag now. My family's from the South. I grew up in Brownsville section of Brooklyn, really below the poverty line. My father worked for transit. My mother worked for Macy's. All of her tired, living in the South again. It's funny that they would migrate from the South to escape Jim Crow laws, only to leave New York City to kind of escape a revisiting of the Jim Crow laws again, I guess. But they're safe in the South and, and you know, safe from Corona. They live in kind of the sticks down there. They raised me and my brother up. I've I'm a, I'm a bad decision maker. I am probably the worst uh, decision maker you ever want to meet. I got here. I got my master's degree. I, I think and looked through a different lens. I think John Lennon had a lot to do with me looking through a different scope. He, he allows me to look at things differently, and he exposes not just me but a lot of other individuals in here to to what we're thinking and how to think about what we're thinking, how to formulate, how to to say how we think. What's your master's in? It's in theology. I got it from MITS, New York Theological Seminary. It, what's reminiscent of my thought from the program is a conversation that we were had about the Islamic Caliphate, the Chalcedon Church, and the non-Chalcedon Church. And the Chalcedon Church and the non-Chalcedon Church, of course, had conflict over crisis reality. One said he was God, the other said that he was a messenger. And the Islamic Caliphate was in line with the one that said that Christ is a messenger. And of course, the two started to conflict with the ones who said that Christ was God. But what was interesting and which made me open was that there was some unity between the Islamic Caliphate and these Christians who believed that Christ was a messenger. And what happens is, is that they want to have a conversation with the non-Chalcedons about Christ's existence as God. And what it did, I never thought on that plane before. I'm from Brownsville. Come on, man. I mean, what the hell, man? Come on, man. I'm from Brooklyn, baby. We don't talk like that. We don't talk about things like that. I want to know what Jay-Z can really kick out. But anyway, we rock like that. So I'm like, okay, cool. But in fact, a plethora of the conversations, Steve, you know, the professors can't think of her. We call her the general. Dr. Schaefer. Oh, my God. Happens to be from Brooklyn. But just, she's, she's traveled everywhere. She makes what I've seen 
in my 53 years, and I haven't seen much. I'm probably the only black man from Brownsville who's never been on a plane. I've never been on a plane. I've never been. I've been to southern states. I've been to typical black gatherings, bike rallies, stuff like that. You know, bike runs, North Carolina, South Carolina, stuff like that. But never abroad. But just being with her, I've traveled. Being in a master's program, I've traveled. Watching TV, I've traveled. Have you had some pretty meaningful conversations about theology with the other guys in there? I had a conversation with a guy because I'm I'm a Muslim. And so a guy, well, John actually did an article. I got the name, The Plow. He did, a, he did an interview on me with The Plow. And he used to always ask me, what does inshallah mean? What does that mean, inshallah, inshallah? Because I always say it. What inshallah means is, God willing. Like, he told me, yo, man, what you need to call Steve up? And I said, inshallah. He's like, oh, right, 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 inshallah, inshallah. And then I come outside, and he said, yo, you're going to just stay ring for me. I said, yeah, yeah, inshallah. Because that's something that I'm living by, because if God willing, if God wills it, then it will happen. If he wills it, it's going to happen. Like, I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to gather my, my belongings and head inside to lock in in a few minutes, inshallah. That is my premise. If God wills it, I'm going to do all I can, but with the understanding that it has to be by God's will. I'm going to do all my hand. I'm not going to leave off doing my task because you have to do everything. You know, we got a saying in Islam that says, do everything of have faith in the law, but, but tie your can. What's something you would want everybody out here on the outside to listen to, the takeaway, just something you'd ask for us to know or understand? That the George Floyd's in here, some have cried, some are angry. Some of the George Floyd's in here want to give money to George Floyd's family. George Floyd's in here wanted to go to the funeral. The George Floyd's in here want justice for George Floyd's death. The George Floyd's in here hope that the guy who killed George Floyd is met with the equal amount of justice that he sought necessary to kill George Floyd, that there are a, a lot of George Floyds here. With all the problems that guys have in here, the 20 to life guys, the 40 to life guys, the guys with families that they worried about COVID-19, the guys who are sick, there was a eerie quietness that you can hear when we were all watching it. A lot of what the hell, what the F, what the what. Society has to know that there are George Floyds in here, George Floyd survivors, guys that been in chokeholds, guys that had need. Most arrests in the hood come with the chokehold and the knee and the neck. I've never got arrested. And this is my third arrest. I've never got arrested and not have either the cuffs tight, the chokehold, or the knee in the back of my neck. I would want society to know that most black men have gone through that. The same black men who used to watch the show cops and go, oh, shit, man. That happened to me. Oh, man, look at cops. Cops is such a demeaning program. They need to talk about getting rid of the your mama. They need to get rid of the show cops. They, they actually, did you not hear about that? Yeah, they actually have canceled the cops. Oh, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, yeah, that was canceled fairly recently. Wow. I didn't hear that, Steve. That's, that's, I always thought that that was, you know, you let the media know that the cops running by chasing a black man is normal. And the apprehension of him, how violent it may be, has to be done. That that I'm glad that made, made my nightmare. Made, made my day with that, Steve. 
Hey. I, I didn't do anything. Just, just the messenger, man. Wow, man, that, that that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. I can't wait to go tell Irene and his brother. I chopped up with her all the time. I can't wait to talk. So there you have it. So I consider all these men friends. I just like to say that we lap the same parking lot of a prison yard. We all sweat our asses off these days and these cells. And I think we have important conversations that are sometimes uncomfortable, especially nowadays. The other day I was talking to Arif and I asked him if he thought I still had white privilege in prison. And he was like, absolutely. And he pointed to the platform I have. And there's truth to that. But it's hard to acknowledge without seeing it as like an attack on my creativity and all this other stuff. And I think that's where a lot of people are at today. There's just there's like a lot of these reckoning conversations that people are thinking, like I'm thinking like that. I just keep the focus on myself. I mean, when I hear that, like I get defensive, and I think like, and I've been in this sort of situation. Uh, when I say the situation, I've been incarcerated, you know, around my peers like since I was a kid. But still, having a conversation about race is like walking in a minefield, and it's just. You don't know what to say. You don't know if you're saying the right thing or the wrong thing, and you tend to avoid the conversation. But we've been having these conversations. Uh, I've been reading Tahanisa Coates' Between the World and Me, and at times, if I'm being honest, it's, it's an uncomfortable book to read. He says racism is uh, a visceral experience, and I agree with that. Coates also writes, my experience in this world has been that the people who believe themselves to be white are obsessed with the politics of personal exoneration. I think he's so right with that. It's this like sort of eye roll and shit, like, I'm not a racist. I have black friends, blah, blah, blah. It's like this, this sort of, you know, conversation. I mean, I've even said these things. So it's, I think we're all having this conversation right now. And I guess if I could have these uncomfortable conversations in a fucking prison yard, then I guess we could all have them. So, I mean, I hope you guys got something this week. And, uh, I mean, join the conversation uh, at Twitter, John J. Lennon 1. Thanks so much. This is a collect call from Sing Sing. It's produced by Jeff DeRay, Kirsten Woodward, and Steve Delamater, with help from Elena Garcia, Jack Greenbaum, and Devin Sherman. Special thanks to Norm Pattis, Peter Morris, Elizabeth Bayquet, and Rachel Yanover. Follow John on Twitter at John J. Lennon 1 and check out his work at johnjlennon.org. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts.